0: Today, I'm joined by Philippe Uh He is a PhD candidate at Cornell um, and a research fellow at the Center for the Study of Partisanship and Ideology. Welcome, Philippe. Hi, welcome. Thank you so much for, for coming on. Um, I've been uh, following your tweets, of course, because that's where I get all my information. Um, and I've seen um, your Substack as well, and I feel like we've got a lot of um Fruitful areas of discussion and uh, some some more contrarian things to to uncover from from your work, uh, but I feel like one of your main focus areas lately, uh, especially judging by your subsec, has been the war in Ukraine as a kind of a, a canvas of of modern um, obsessions and psychoses and tendencies and and um, I, I I think obviously this is a, a sprawling subject, but um, this has been going on now for a while. It's been over a year since the war in Ukraine started. Um, you've thought about this in, in much detail. I mean, let's start with maybe what is the status quo at the moment, because even even being in a neighboring country in Romania, I mean, I get a little bit of the news, but to be honest, it's all, you know, from the Associated Press, it's Reuters. It's not really um, that interesting. Uh, I don't really follow it that closely. Uh, what I also get is just, you know, things filtered through my my Twitter bubble, uh, but it also has kind of died down. You know, there's not that much going on, it seems, or maybe there is, but people aren't talking about it. So uh, from your perspective, as someone who's keeping maybe a little bit of a closer eye on things, like what is the status quo in Ukraine at the moment?
1: Well, well it, it's hard to tell for sure. I mean, that's that part of the issue here. Um, I mean, basically, uh, You know, if if I were to do like a short summary of the war, Uh, I guess everyone expected that uh, uh, Ukraine would be trolled relatively quickly at the beginning, but then it didn't happen. Uh, I think, you know, the Ukrainians were mostly on their own at the beginning for the first like say, three months, and they managed to uh, prevent the Russians from uh, from defeating them militarily. Uh, After about three months, I think Western military assistance became more important. Because basically Ukraine was going to run out of ammunition for very important system, mostly artillery, and so we kind of like uh, came in you know and gave them like NATO standard artillery with the relevant ammunition, and this allowed them to stay in the fight. Uh, you know for a while, Russia was slowly grinding at you know Ukrainian territory, but then at the end of last summer uh, Ukraine did. Uh, pretty impressive and surprising actually to me um, counter-offensive and successful counter in the Kharkiv region in the north, northeast uh, and it took back like uh, a bunch of territory that Russia had initially conquered then did the same thing in Kurson, Although over there, it was much more uh, it was much slower much more difficult, probably got them a lot more losses um, then you know the Russians uh, did a, a so-called partial mobilization, which allowed them to plug the gap in their lives because they had lost a lot of people in the first month of the conflict. And, and this was, it was become necessary, which kind of like stopped the, you know, Ukrainian gains for a while. Um, and now, like since the beginning of, the well, since about the end of January, I guess, uh, Russia has been going back on the offensive, but... Not with very impressive results and probably with like a lot of losses. Um, although, you know, they did make some gains. I still think it's likely eventually they will take back most. Um, there is a similar situation forming in another city, uh, called Advika in the same region with Twitter stuff. Um, but you know, it it's not, like the results of their offensive, uh, we don't know for sure that they don't have like a larger offensive in the in the works, but it's becoming increasingly unlikely, and so far it's been rather underwhelming and probably very costly to them. And now we're waiting for a Ukrainian counteroffensive. And so when you're asking me what we expect in school, well, we we don't really know. You know, one possibility is that we're in the same situation we were at the end of last summer. That is. Okay, the Russians, you know, have been going on, been on the offensive for a while without very impressive results. You know, they did gain some territory, but it's very slow and very costly. And now the Ukrainians, you know, they've been training and, you know, training new brigade brigades, brigades um, far away from the front uh, with new equipment that the West sent. But, I mean, we haven't sent all that much, that's another issue, but, uh but still we did send like we did make a surge, you know, there wasn't surge in ads recently military assistance at the beginning of the year. It's it's coming more slowly than people would have thought, I think, initially, but still, you know, there is a bunch of stuff that that has probably arrived by now. And so the the, the Ukrainians are preparing like fresh brigades that they're gonna throw in, in this counter offensive. And so, you know, one possibility again is that it will have a similar success that they had last summer, at the end of last summer, beginning of the fall, you know, in Kharkiv and Kursan. Um And in that case, you know, they will gain more territory again, uh, slowly um, getting back, you know, the territory that the, that the Russians initially conquered. Um, I mean, I'm sure it will be true to some extent. I would be surprised if they didn't take back some territory. But the question is, will this be enough to induce a negotiated settlement? Uh, I I really doubt this will be the case, you know, because I think even if they manage to take, you know, the Russians have uh, created something that people call a a land corridor in the Southeast that joins Crimea to Donbass um, above the Black Sea and the the Azov Sea. Um, And so, uh, Apparently, if, again, it's very difficult to know for sure what's going on. But apparently, the the, the hope of the uh, Western allies of uh, Ukraine—I mean, they're not technically allies, but functionally they are at this point—seems um, to be at least of the US. Seems to be that if Ukraine can uh, cut in half that land corridor, it will it will threaten Crimea. And because Russia really cares about Crimea, the hope is that if this happens, Putin will negotiate, will make compromises, and there can be a, a negotiated settlement and the war can end that way. But first of all, I think it's really obvious that, uh, Ukraine can really, uh, cut in half the land corridor. You know, they would have to be able to take, uh, in particular, a typical in that area. But the the Russians are really deeply entrenched over there because they've been building the temple and fortifications for Malk over there. So it's going to be really hard. But who knows? You know, it, they may still do it. I mean, personally, uh, I doubt they will. But uh, although, I, again, I think they will take some territory back. But uh, I doubt their of effects will be so successful that they will manage to take Militopol and cut the uh, the land bridge in half. And even if they do, I doubt that Putin will negotiate. I don't think he will because I don't think um, the Ukrainians will be prepared to offer him a deal that uh, he'd regard as acceptable. You know, I make no judgment about whether the deal in question would be acceptable. I mean, he did invade the country in the first place. Um, I'm just saying, you know, I doubt he will, even in that extremely optimistic, scenario for Ukraine where they managed to cut the land bridge in half and take militable, But that's where we are. You know, we, we don't know. Um, we don't even know if Ukraine will be able to do this. Um, and so, you know, it, it could be that they, even short of taking that they, they may like take back a bunch of territory in that area and the stuff. I'm assuming they love the culture of country in the South, but we don't know that either. It may be, you know, that seems to be based on leaks in the press. It seems to be what the U.S. is pushing them to do, but since recently they've been <clears throat> they made the decision to defend Bakhmut at all cost. It may be that um, that in fact they will try to make a push over there instead. Uh, we don't know, you know, maybe somewhere else. Uh, we don't know for sure, and but but we should know soon, you know. the... I think they there should launch loss and counter offensive in the next few weeks. Again, we I have to know exactly when, but it, it shouldn't take too long at this point. Uh and then we'll know, but so we'll, we'll you know, it may be that you know, I think they will take some territory back. Uh I doubt it will be as successful as the Americans are apparently hoping. Uh and even if it is as successful, I doubt it will be enough to bring about a negotiated settlement. But of course it, another possibility is that the counter will fail and, and, you know, won't manage to, that the Ukrainians won't manage to take back much territory wherever they launch it, that it will be extremely costly, same as the Russian offensive. Recently, it's probably been extremely costly in men and material. So, you know, we, that's where we are. So it's hard to know, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty about everything. You know, we don't know. We don't have a very clear idea of what the losses are, uh, especially for Ukraine, but to a large extent, this is also true of Russia. I think it's likely that Russia has lost more, significantly more. I mean, it definitely has lost more equipment. I think it's all but certain it has lost more men. Uh, but nevertheless, I also think that it's very likely that Ukraine has paid a very, very high cost in terms of men and equipment. And it's really unclear how this will, you know, shake up. Uh, That's where we are. You know, we should know more in a few weeks because after the Ukrainians have launched their counteroffensive, we'll see how successful it was and we'll see how the Russians will will react. You know, will they negotiate if it's successful enough as the Americans apparently hope? Or will they just double down and inject more resources into the war? Uh, Well, we don't know, you know, I I think, Again, if I had to bet, I'll say the, the Ukrainian counteroffensive will have some measure of success, but not nearly as much as, uh, the very optimistic scenario which they're able to, to cut the land bridge in half and induce the negotiated settlement. Uh, and I think even if they do cut the, somehow, you know, take Militopol and cut the land bridge in half, uh, I seriously doubt that Putin will negotiate at this point. Um, so, yeah, that, that's where we are. It's difficult to know, you know, what's ahead. But like I said, we, we should know in a few weeks, we should know more. Very difficult because, you know, there's a lot of information, again, we, we just don't have.
0: Yeah, the, the picture you're your painting here is uh, of, a, of a war which might last several years more, who knows how, how long, because it, it just, you know, it, it seems that both sides have... Um, comparable advantages. And I mean, I guess with, with the unofficial allies, there's also uncertainty how much they will want to invest in this conflict moving forward. And yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I think I'm convinced that probably every war in history was like that, but with the the at least maybe um, seeming mm. detail that we're getting about this one and the seemingly uh, abundant information about it, I feel like it, uh, it offers so many more data points false or correct or propagandistic or you know where I feel like information seems to be almost a, a combatant or at least an, an, a tool in itself in this in this war in ways in which um, maybe it hasn't been in other wars where you know details such as these just weren't available or they were kind of just you know summarized in a study you know after after things had already concluded uh, and uh, the battles were fought in in different circumstances but I feel like at least here in Eastern Europe, I mean, the um, information and just like pretty much blatant propaganda that you see uh, traded by both sides, probably mostly for, for the pro-Ukrainian side, because our media is very much enthralled to, to Western media as well, is incredible. And it has swayed a lot of uh, public attitudes towards it. It also meshed with um, with a, a hatred of the Russians, which I have to admit is goes pretty deep here because Pretty much every family in this region has some form of, you know, horrible, you know, rape, murder lore related to the Red Army, or the Russians in general, or just for the crimes of communism. I mean, people can't stand the Russians, and it's really been, uh, you know, interesting to see how that kind of meshed with the, with the current uh, current ideas coming from the media. So it's it's a it's a strange. I mean, how do you see the importance? How has the reporting on this conflict shaped the conflict?
1: So well, I, I find that very interesting because going into the war, I would have thought that given modern means of communication, um, you know, the fact that everybody has a camera, we get lots of videos and, uh, you know, everybody has access to the Internet, even in Ukraine, even in like <clears throat> uh, war zones, people can, you know, say, talk about what they see. So, in a way, we do have a lot more information, probably, that we had with previous wars. Um, But what I found interesting is that I don't... Maybe I'm wrong, because, you know, of course, I didn't leak through the previous wars, at least, you know, the big one. But I don't feel like this extra information has really allowed us to get the clearer picture of the situation, because, as I said... There is still a lot we don't know, and, you know, a lot of that information acts more as noise than signal, so we don't have a clear idea of where things are and where they're headed. We can make some guesses, you know, like I said, I I have my own guesses, but it's not as as if I were, like, really confident in them because I recognize that there's so much we don't know, but I find that interesting that... um, all this extra information, and again, you know, we we do have extra information compared to previous wars. I don't think it has really translated into a clear picture. But, <coughs> sorry, maybe I'm um, maybe I'm underestimating the extent to which things were even more foggy um, in previous war, but I'm not sure. You know, I think um, what's interesting is I find that interesting that this you can have a lot more information without the Picture being much clearer. So well, that's one thing that I found striking. Then, of course, as you say, you know, both sides engage in propaganda. There, I think it the means are different, but I don't think it's fundamentally different from previous wars. I mean, you've seen very similar things. If you go back, if you read stuff dating back from the say the Civil War in Spain or even World War Two, you, you see very similar things going on. You know, both sides trying to you know, minimizing their, um, their, uh, failures and, uh, um, <clears throat> magnifying those of the, of, of the other side, uh, uh you know, a lot of moralistic, um, uh, uh, propaganda from, from both sides trying to claim the moral high ground. This is, I think, very similar, you know, like, a, a uh And also what I find striking, but again, I'm not physically new, is how people, because, you know, at least in Romania, as you say, people have some, like you can understand how, why many people are like morally or, you know, emotionally involved in this conflict because they have a history of Russia. And so I can see why they would be very emotionally involved in the defense of Ukraine. What I find most striking is how you had something similar going on uh, further west, you know, and even in France, which is far removed and, and doesn't have the same history of Russia, where some people are really totally emotionally involved um, in this. And I think it, I do think this is the result of the fact that propaganda has been very effective. You know, I'm using the word neutrally nu- here, um, like I think. It's propaganda. Whether you you think that uh, it's a good thing that we're supporting Ukraine in the way we do, and uh, which I don't, but uh, many people do, and whether you think that uh, Russian invasion is wrong, which I do think it was wrong, but that's a separate question from whether we should help Ukraine in the way we do. Um, my point is that there is a lot of propaganda, and clearly it's been very effective in mobilizing, least some people and making them really emotionally involved. But I find that more surprising in a country like France, which doesn't have this kind of relationship, this kind of history of Russia than Romania or Poland. Uh, so, and, and yeah, of course, uh, there has been a lot of that, you know, people, <clears throat> I think, you know, the, the ground had been prepared by, um there's been a lot of like anti-Russia discourse Permeating in the in the media and like in the intellectual environment even prior to the war, so this is something actually I I find interesting. I think it's it's related to, uh, to to the long term causes of the war, but that that's another issue. But and and so this was kind of like prime people to react so strongly I think to the conflict. But then and then after the war started, of course you know. I mean, to some extent, this is natural. People will see the images of the atrocities and everything, and then this will make them uh, uh-huh. this will make them upset. And then you know, I think the propaganda has been very effective. Ukrainian propaganda has been very effective in 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 exploiting that. Whereas uh, Russian propaganda, I think, has not been that good. And also, you know, I mean it, it, it was very dip- it was much more difficult for Russia in the first place. I mean, first of all, because you know, they just, I think they're wrong. Uh, I mean, like the invasion was wrong, so it's going to be much more difficult to convince people in the rest of the world uh, at least you know, in the West where the uh, dominant discourse is very hostile to Russia, even before the war, it was hostile to Russia, that they're somehow not in the wrong. Um, and, uh, you know, most of their propaganda, even if it were more uh, uh, competent, would have a hard time finding an audience, you know, at least among the, the, the elites in, in the West. And, and in, indeed it hasn't, you know, clearly it hasn't been very effective, whereas Ukrainian propaganda has been very effective. And I think they've played their cards pretty well, but it was easier for them again, because the, the ground was much more fertile for, for this kind of propaganda.
0: Because, um, I think there's a, a change not only in, um, and like you said, may- maybe less so in the content of the propaganda, but just in in the kind of it it's and uh, the um, speed of delivery, the the you know the the massive uh, volume of it that you can um, yeah distribute at the same time, and also the kind of the, the confusion about what's what's real and what's not. I guess that's also not necessarily new, but it's just you know there's a mass of of very potent like audio video type of information which we've seen in the past I mean it, it really swayed things in pretty much every recent scandal from you know foreign color revolutions like you um, you saw that with the Arab Spring uh, to like George Floyd was essentially an audio video propagated you know mass movement um, and all of these little things I mean obviously the war has produced a lot of you know, gore and stories and confessions and, you know, little clips from WhatsApp messages from the Russian soldiers to the this and that. And all of these things seem to have been ve- weighted very heavy on, um, on you know, the power of, of the propaganda. And they also, you know, they also spawned like a lot of um, commentary, um, you know, even, even written media nowadays is uh, a lot of times reporting on the content of whatever audio video fragment is very important at the at the moment um and i think this kind of meshes a little bit with your uh, theme or your your thesis of a kind of liberal imperialism um and the fact that a lot of these uh tidbits of information like audio video clips um are highly morally valent and they just they they spawn these like very because you said okay romania is, is logical you know we we have kind of this blood memory of the Russians coming here, but you can um, kind of incept blood memory into people by showing in-group members being hurt or people who you perceive might be in-group members being hurt by a supposed out-group. Um, and then you were essentially kind of, you know, kickstarting things that, you know, you wouldn't have a sense for um, just by presenting these audio. This, this was also the case with the, uh, you know, the, the baby washed up on the shore, like all sorts of, you know, terrible things that you can essentially, you know, used use to, to sway politics in your direction. Um so I wonder how you think that, you know, this the capacity to spurn people to moral outrage has been used in this in this conflict and in other instances of, of liberal imperialism. Maybe you can go into the thesis of liberal imperialism as well.
1: Yes. Um so what I call liberal imperialism Rough, very roughly. I, I wrote a long essay on this on my Substack. If people want to know more about this, what I call our yeah, liberalism. But, um, roughly the idea that, um, our foreign policy, when I say our, I mean the West foreign policy, uh, Western countries foreign policy should aim to, um, to spread liberal value across the world, basically. So we shouldn't just uh and you know, and so we should we should aim at regime transformation. I'm using regime transformation, the expression of regime transformation rather than regime change, because regime change is strongly associated this expression is strongly associated with one very specific type of regime transformation, namely armed intervention to bring about the change of regime uh in a in a country. But regime transformation is much broader than that. You can there other types of policies, including less aggressive policies and like an actual inter- armed arm intervention that aim to bring about a, a transformation of, of the country and regime. And so what I call liberal imperialism will very roughly, again, I, I go into more detail in the, in the piece, in the essay, but is the, um, a policy, uh, aiming to, uh, transform regimes, you know, all over the world uh, to turn them into more liberal regimes to spread liberal values. And so it's the idea that our foreign policy should reflect on liberal values and that we shouldn't, for instance, uh, we shouldn't have normal relations of non-liberal regimes. We should kind of like quarantine them and pressure them in various ways so have to bring about internal change uh, in a more liberal direction in those countries. So in some cases it will take the form of an actual armed intervention, but this is pretty rare because those are risky and costly and divorce. But uh, in other cases, it will be more solid, You know, we'll use economic sanctions, uh, we'll fund pro-democracy liberal organization in those places. We'll use various kinds of soft power. Um, you know, it it, uh, it can take a lot of different forms and. Uh, And so that's, that's what I call liberal imperialism. And of course, um, propaganda and especially images, you know, videos, photos are, are one of the ways in which, uh, people are whipped up against non-liberal regimes and into supporting this kind of policy. So, you know, people will, um, I don't know, like show, uh, show pictures of, uh, Uyghurs camp, you know, satellite pictures of Uyghurs were well, internal Chinese internment camps in, in Xinjiang, uh, mm-hmm. where, you know, Uyghurs are kept. Uh, uh and so they were used to justify a you know, like harsh, you know, policies like decoupling, which is the policy of, you know, reducing the amount of trade between China and the West. Uh, so that we don't, we're not reliant on China anymore. We can. Uh, you know, we, we can, it, it's less costly for us to apply pressure, uh, so that the regime, you know, the Chinese regime will change in a more liberal direction. Um, and I, you know, and, and of course, yes, yeah, people are going to use videos, people are going to use photos to, you know, those media are extremely powerful because they, they have a very strong emotional effect on people. So you were mentioning, in you know, the picture of that little kid. Washed up on the coast of um, Turkey I believe, after trying, or maybe was it was it Greece? Anyway, was trying to make his family was trying to cross uh, uh, the sea, you know, to get to Europe from Turkey. And and of course, you know, this is this is something that has a strong effect on people. So if you're doing propaganda, you're going to be using that stuff. Um, you know, the other side does it too, obviously, but again, it's not very effective because. They don't have many relays here. I mean, they, they do, you know, you know, you have a lot of people here who are receptive to, pardon <clears throat> <clears throat> Uh were receptive to Russian propaganda, but they tend to be, people are not very influential, you know, like the, what Clinton called the deplorables. Um, so yeah, I mean, those people, you know, in, you know, there are lots of those people who are susceptible to Russian propaganda and will also use, you know, images, videos, etc. cetera, uh, in the West, But they tend to be these kind of people, people who have no influence. They have, uh, they're not, you know, they don't have access to mainstream media, typically, or when they do have access for it, to it, it's because they're demonized by them, you know, so it doesn't matter much and it doesn't do Russia much good that they can, touch these kind of people, because these kind of people have very little influence on policy. And on the other hand, Russia has close to no influence. Russian propaganda has close to no influence on people who do have influence on policy in the West. So, you know, the uh, intellectual and policy elite, they're not susceptible at all to Russian propaganda, uh, first of all, because to a large extent, they just don't look at it or listen to it, you know, they don't read, you know, Russia, you know, they don't read or watch Russia today or that sort of thing. Um but also even if they did, uh again they're primed to be hostile to Russia. And so it it, it they will just assume it's bullshit. Um and uh which you know it mostly is, but so is the propaganda from the other side. But of course they have a different reaction to this. Um yeah.
0: I feel like a, a lot of the kind of refusal to engage with Russian propaganda is also because a lot of it is counter narrative. And the only people who are kind of have her, their feelers out for counter narrative are the so-called deplorables, you know, whatever right, right wing people who are, but as you on the internet. Um, and most people, they, they just don't necessarily regist- register those signals. Like, you have the idea that, you know, Russia represents this kind of, um, civilization state that they have a, a, a right of deciding their own, you know, parameters that they have a certain claim on the territory of Ukraine. I mean, a, a lot of those arguments would ring either hollow or fake or insane to a lot of people who subscribe to to liberal imperialism as the the moral way of conducting foreign policy, which is pretty much everyone and especially everyone and i mean most people in government i don't know there might be some you know sleeper agents from there but mostly that's kind of how people, how how countries act at the moment and you just recently had a, a i mean probed today the you know the germany as a as a battered wife of europe uh, syndrome and i feel like you know germany just kind of represents someone who's really swallowed this pill in the most you know destructive way and even though, I guess, individual citizens of Germany see the, the problems that it's caused, uh, the overall direction that things are, are taking and the, the the ideals that their uh, political class uh, inhabit uh, are just absolutely destructive to, to the country itself. And there doesn't seem to be any way to deprogram them. I mean, it really feels like they're just like sleepwalking into into nightmare situations for their population just because of their commitment to liberal imperialism, which is the only thing that you're allowed to want to die for, to need to die for, to send people off to die for. So uh, it just, I don't know, as someone coming from Eastern Europe, I mean, we've got thousands of problems, many more, but uh, we don't necessarily have the, this flavor of this problem at this level yet. And it's much more transparent to see um, and France even as well, and maybe less so, but still, I mean, if you look at the scenes, you know, the the rage anecdotal videos that you see of the, the Champs-Élysées and, you know, this beautiful city of Paris just, you know, in, in flames, um, you know, you, you ask yourself, okay, what exactly are these people thinking? And it's, I don't know, I really don't know. Um, do you think that there might be a, kind of a tipping point, like a preference cascade related to this stuff, or are we in for more uh liberal imperialism I, in the heart of Europe?
1: I think um I mean I think the war has been great for liberal imperialism because it seems to validate everything they've been saying. I think it's wrong, you know. I think you know I think the the, the narrative, the dominant narrative about the origins of the war is wrong, that it's much more complicated than, than this narrative suggests, <clears throat> and that to a large extent, it's actually even the opposite of what they're saying, that, it, that it's precisely this kind of liberal imperialist policies that contributed to make this thing happen. Uh, again, I'm not saying, obviously, that, you know, I don't say that to say that Russia has in the clear that, have, you know, there is nothing wrong with, like, invading Ukraine. Of course, of course it's wrong. but. You have to think about how this is something that even in Russia was unimaginable a few years ago, and so you have to ask yourself how do we come to the point where someone like Putin would not only regard this as you know thinkable, but even to some extent come to the conclusion that he had no choice in the relevant sense. Of course, it's not literally true that he had no choice, but he, he convinced himself that he had no choice. And so you have to ask yourself, how oh, did this happen? And that's where I think that uh, Western policy uh, in the past, you know, since the end of the Cold War, basically have been very much at fault. Uh, again, I'm not saying that the Russians have agency, uh, but what they do and how they see the world also depends on what we do. And so I do think that, uh, but, you know, uh, nevertheless, to explain this, you know, I'm, Working on something at the moment too, which is basically going back on the history of the post Cold War relations between the West and Russia to try to understand how we get, we got to this point. But precisely to do this, you need to go back on 30 years of history that most people don't know and don't care about, you know, really obscure stuff that happened in the 1990s, in the 2000s that kind of like contributed to the deterioration of relations between the West and Russia and and shapes the way in which the Russians were framing the issue and how they still their options. So you have to do this, but you know, this is very long and most people are not gonna read this stuff because it's just boring to most people and they don't have time or they, they don't, they're not interested enough to take the time. Um, um, whereas if you're a liberal imperialist, you have a ready-made narrative that's superficially very compelling you know, you, you've always been saying that the Russians are, um, at least the Russian regime is is this evil regime that's uh, hell-bent on world domination or at least dominating Eastern Europe and, you know, wants to invade it, uh, its uh, neighbors, you know, or at least, you know, use uh, force or the threat of force to compel them to do their, to do what they want. And, you know, Superficially, it looks as though this is exactly what happened because one thing clear that Russia did invade Ukraine and, you know, it wasn't forced to invade Ukraine. It's not that Ukraine, like, attacked Russia first or anything. Uh, I mean, you know, you sure, you know, the Ukrainians were shelling uh, ethnic Russians in, in Donbass. But I mean, Donbass is technically, you know, it, it's legally part of Ukraine. And you have like funny people who went there and started a civil war. Basically, what do you expect the country to do? You know, no country is going to let part of, of its territory go away, uh, without doing anything, especially since if you look at Polish in 2014, even in, in Donbass, the majority of people didn't want to secede from Ukraine, even though a sizable minority did. Um, it was still a minority. So, you know, um, Bottom line, you know, Russia wasn't forced to do this, they did this. So it it seems to validate everything that the liberal imperialists have been saying for forever. I think it's wrong. Again, I think if you you look at the history more closely, you will see that this narrative is wrong. But nevertheless, it's extremely, superficially, it's very compelling. And that's why I say that this war has been great for the liberal imperialism, because it seems to validate what they were saying. Whereas people who oppose it... um, you know, they have their work. You know, it, it's very difficult for them because they have again to. They're fighting a losing battle. You know, on the one hand, you have people who can uh, tell you a narrative in like 30 seconds that seems superficially very compelling uh, that promote their worldview. On the other hand, you have people like me. If I want to explain why this is wrong, I have to go back on 30 years of history. It's going to take forever. You know, like most people are going to tune out after two minutes. Like I said, it's fighting and losing battle. So that's why I say the, the war has been great for for uh, liberal imperialism. So how I see this going, you know, um, you know I wouldn't know what you said because you said that people in government are on board with that stuff. I mean, sure, liberal imperialism is definitely the dominant strain of foreign policy thinking in, in Western government. I don't deny this. But you do have a lot of people who have, you know, first of all, even liberal imperialists come in different stripes. And to so some are more extremist than others. And you have a variety of liberal imperialists and some are more moderate in, in Western government. But you also have, even today, there are still people, especially in a country like France, you still have a lot of people in government who don't think that way. The problem is that... um they're in the minority, and or at least, you know, people who are liberal imperialists in government, they have more, uh, they have more weapons to uh, impose their preferred policy. But you have internal debates, you know, like you, people shouldn't think that there are no debates within Western governments about what to do. I don't think that most Western governments, you know, we kind of sleepwalk into our current policy towards Ukraine. I think it's a mistake to think that from the beginning, Western governments were gung-ho on defending Ukraine and decided from the outset to commit themselves to the defense of Ukraine. That's not at all what happened. If you look at the articles from even as late as March 2022, so like two or three weeks into the war, uh, according to the press at the time, Western governments were still uh, planning for a Ukraine government in exile and basically founding an insurgency in Ukraine because they were still expecting that eventually Russia would win. Um, You know, it's just that the Ukrainians didn't cooperate and like didn't lose. Uh, And so after this, it became much more difficult. You know, the pressure to do something became very strong. You know, people would say, well, you know, look at the Ukrainians, they've fought very bravely, they've been able to um, warn of the Russian invasion, prevent Russia from taking Kiev. Um but now, you know, if we don't help them, if we don't send them artillery and ammunition, they're going to lose, not because they don't want to fight, not because they lack the will to fight and resist the Russian invasion, but because they simply don't have the material means to to keep fighting. And so, how yeah, can we the, how can we do this? You know, there's this like the moral, there's a form of moral blackmail here. How can we let those people who have fought so bravely lose not for lack of a will to fight, but because they don't have the means to keep fighting? And so, it became very difficult. So we send them artillery and ammunition, but even at this time, you know, there was clearly not a plan, you know, to commit very strongly to Ukraine's defense. I mean, we don't have any hard commitment to do so. You know, we don't have the treaty with Ukraine that commits us to, to defend it against invasion, we have no formal commitment to, to, to do so. But gradually, you know, because Ukraine wasn't defeated quickly, the, the moral weight of the argument that we need to help them uh, became stronger and stronger. And gradually, we, we started like fanning more and more and more support. And before we knew it, we were in the position we, were, we are today, when you have like NATO officials, in every Western country making like very strong claims publicly to the effect that uh, we are committed to defending Ukraine, that we won't abandon Ukraine, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. And this creates the situation where we've kind of like trapped ourselves, backed ourselves into a corner because now that we say this sort of thing, it becomes very difficult to back down. You know, we, it's very difficult to stop supporting Ukraine or we use military assistance to, to the Ukraine, but at the same time, we clearly have no, we don't have a clear idea of how, we don't have a clear exit strategy, because again, you know, if you're really optimistic, you can think that the Ukraine counteroffensive will be so widely successful that it will force Putin to negotiate. But as I said before, first of all, it, it's dubious that it will be that successful. And even if it is, it, it's even more dubious that it will induce uh, Putin to uh, make the sort of compromises that would bring about an end to the conflict. Because again, uh, the Ukrainians in that scenario would would, would have very strong demands. Demands are so strong that it, uh, again, regardless of whether it's morally justified, that's a different question, uh, so strong that it's that dubious de- de- that, that Putin would agree to them and that the war would end. So we don't have a clear exit strategy, but we put ourselves in a situation gradually. But I don't think this was a plan, you know. I think this was a, a gradual thing uh, that we we backed ourselves into a corner by needle by little getting into the situation where we are strongly committed to Ukraine's defense. And now it's very difficult to back down. Uh, but of course, it's also very difficult for the Russians to back down. So that's why I agree with you that probably will last years. Uh, but, you know, to come back to what you were saying, it doesn't mean that everyone, you know, that this is because there is like um, uh unanimity about liberal imperialism in Western government. I don't think that's the case. I think it's just that the faction in government that are behind, that are favor, in favor of liberal imperialism, uh, have better weapons to impose their policy. And also were able to commit ourselves to this kind of policy. Little by little without us realizing it. You know, like I said, they would argue, okay, if we don't send them artillery and ammunition, they're going to lose the war, even though they still want to fight. So let's do this. They were like, okay, if we, if we want them to have a chance to uh, regain territory, which is necessary. So they'll be in the a better position to negotiate. We need to send them, uh, high marks. And now we need to send them armor vehicles. So we do, you know, and then be. Little by little, even though that wasn't like a deliberate plan at the beginning, we had the, those people have been able to maneuver the rest of government into committing themselves very strongly to Ukraine's defense. But it doesn't mean that at the beginning, if you had, if they had made the case at the beginning that we should commit very strongly to Ukraine's defense, if they had made that case in March 2022, I don't think those guys would have won. Even in Western government, you know, those factions in Western government would not have been able to. To convince the rest of the government to go along with this policy in March 2022. They were only able to maneuver us into this policy. I'm not even sure to what extent he was conscious uh, by doing things progressively to the point that now it's too, you know, we've gone too far to back down. Uh, so, yeah. you know, and that's and, because there is debate. You know, there are, there are a variety of views in Western government. Not all people are uh, into that liberal imperialism stuff, at least not as strongly as. You know, most of the commentators. I think there's much more variety um, in uh, yeah. in government that that the public commentary suggest.
0: Yeah, well, I think uh, the the kind of the kind of sneaking conclusion here, and you know, the the word that you use, sleepwalking, is uh, I think a very apt metaphor for what happened. Is that in a way, it doesn't necessarily matter what the individual commitments or ideological, um, you know. Ideas are that that people in government have individually, but that this this thing that happened this escalation um, when these commitments these gradual commitments happened downstream of a wider narrative and of pressure sending the public with this narrative building and what we described before with you know the anecdotes coming out and you know different powers um, applying different types of pressure and the powers that were more in line with the, the core liberal narrative um, of you know who is the underdog, who is the attacker? You know this is not the type of thing that you do nowadays. Like the idea that of, of one country starting a war with another, like you said, this is already puts the the, the attacker on the back foot in terms of the, the whole narrative that everyone has been marinating in since you know since the war started watching TV. You know the the underdog overdog narrative is essentially the the trope that that has is in every every movie every type of music, every sort of thing that we we ever watch. So, yeah, it's definitely an, an uphill battle for anyone who wants to be the attacker in this case. So I think you saw this with COVID as well. I mean, you know, the the initial, you know, I, I remember the initial scramble of how to react to COVID. You know, initially it was, you know, framed in the racism narrative. You know, you needed to go out to Chinatown and hug the people Then um, the first people who were on the mask beat were more like fringy right-wingers. They all went out to get their N95 masks and people were laughing at them. And then slowly the the narrative aligned a little bit and then it was pretty clear that, you know, the pro-mask faction um, was liberal. And then also it was really interesting how those articles that came out right about as as COVID was starting with the hammer and the dance, you know, um, two weeks to stop the spread, flatten the curve type stuff, all of which have become, um, you know, co- common verbal currency now. You know, now you hear two weeks to stop the spread." And you know, you know exactly what it's referring to. Um, became influential, influential in elite circles. Then China lockdown started. Then every other country, uh, you know, seeing also the, you know, the, the visual of people, people collapsing on the streets of Wuhan. Um, all of that created this pressure to escalate into the direction of the Chinese policy, which was lockdown. So lockdowns we got, you know, uh, British Prime Minister was not on board with it. But then, you know, a week later, he, he suddenly was. So um, it really does seem like there is a, a vanguard that happens somewhere else but government where all of these things are decided, maybe not necessarily decided, but influenced enough to, to push policy in the, in the core where the actual policy happened. Um, and I feel like that's kind of what's happening with Ukraine as well.
1: So, I think it's different, though. Um, Or at least, I'm really not sure it's it's the same. What I mean by this is that in the case of lockdowns and, you know, COVID restrictions in general, um, I'm really not sure that, you know, I think it it was much more contingent. It's not as if, I mean, in fact, the elite narrative before this was opposed to to those kind of restrictions. If you read that WHO uh, papers on, you know, uh, pandemic preparedness and, and even like the uh, virus government uh, pandemic uh, preparedness plan, they were actually arguing against this type of extreme measures. But I think what I say is contingent is that so of course, you know, China first did the, the lockdown and that provided an example to the world. But I think probably what 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 was more important, although it probably wouldn't have happened if china had not done it first you know in wuhan is when the italian government did it and then it started a cascade where um it became you know this type of of response became the default response and it stayed the default response for the duration of the pandemic but i'm not convinced that it could not have been otherwise you know i'm not convinced that if the italian government say had not done that uh at Because, you know, by the time the Italian government ordered the lockdown, probably incidence has already started going down in Italy. So if the Italian government had not done that, and it wasn't obvious that they were going to do this, I mean, I think they could not have done this. It wasn't written in in stone, you know, because again, the the establishment, uh, you know, prior view on this was opposed to this kind of response. So if Italy had not done that, then, you know, people would have seen that incidents was going down anyway in the rest of, of Europe and the rest of the world. And I'm, I'm really not sure that this would have become the default response. So I think in this case, there was really a very strong contingent element in, in the fact that this became the default response. I think it's very different in the case of Ukraine. Because in the case of Ukraine, this, you know, uh, liberal imperialism was already the, the dominant view, at least among commentators, uh, before the war, and the war seemed to validate their narrative, so it, it's unsurprising that it would make this even more true. Uh, and you know, similarly, not it's not just about imperialism, but more specifically, uh, animosity toward Russia, hostility toward Russia, was already a dominant thing. You know, people would talk about, which was ridiculous. You know, you'd have all those talk, this talk about the Russian threat. You know, and I spent years, and I remember I I went back to previous discussions I've had on Twitter. on this. Like I found one from 2017, which is the, literally the year I got on Twitter. I actually had those conversations even earlier before I was on Twitter, where I was arguing with people talking about the Russian center. What are you talking about? I mean, Russia has the GDP that between that of Canada, if you look in nominal terms, and uh, Germany, if you look in PPP, I mean, obviously, this is not a country that has the means to subjugate Europe. It's nonsense. It it, it doesn't pose a threat in any meaningful sense, at least not to NATO. You know, you can discuss, obviously, if you're Ukraine, that's the difference, but we're not Ukraine. And that's not what those people are talking about when they talk about the Russian threat. They talk as if it were a threat to the rest of Europe. Uh, You know, if you're Ukraine or Moldova or Georgia, okay, yeah, sure. But, you know, we're not. So anyway, but the, the point I'm saying is that in the case of Ukraine, there was a this uh, anti narrative was already very strong before the war, so it's different to me. It's very different from the case of the the lockdown response to the pandemic, you know, and the strong restrictions in response to COVID. Because in that case, if you look at the elite narrative on pandemic response before the uh, COVID arrived in the West, it was actually a positive thing. So we, in this case, it was actually reversal. Of the dominant narrative, that's not at all the case in, you know, with the the war in Ukraine. So that's why I think that um, it's different. Then, of course, I agree with you that once you have this narrative reversal, then uh, the the fact that it becomes a dominant narrative that you know this is the thing to do, this is the right kind of response, um, in the case of COVID to COVID, in the case of Russian invasion to the invasion, then of course it done have a very strong effect on policy because it it's very helpful to the factions in government that support those policies can use the dominant narrative to uh further their cause within government. Because again, you know, governments are not they're not unitary actors. You have different factions, they disagree about the right policy response. But when you have like a very strong narrative like this uh, the faction that is consistent with the narrative has a huge advantage in imposing its practices within government and winning the bureaucratic battle and the policy debates within the government, because uh, they can essentially use as leverage the, the this narrative to impose their views uh, more or less gradually. Like if you're if you look at France and Germany, I'm pretty sure that the majority of of people in government over there were not on board with a strong commitment to Ukraine, they can. But uh, there were deba- debates both within those governments and also externally with their allies, you know, within NATO. And essentially what happened is that I think <clears throat> those factions, which I think in France and Germany were in the minority, within the French and German government that were in favor of a strong response in defense of Ukraine, um, and, and those governments that were in favor of the same elsewhere in NATO, like in Eastern Europe, to a lesser extent in, in the US, to a greater extent in the UK, uh, were able to, um, essentially bully the majority of people in the French and German governments who were reluctant to do this into doing it gradually. And, um, you know, because they could, I mean, imagine if Macron, which he did, you know, at some point, like what he used to know, he says it let, but he still occasionally does. But you know, says that uh, we need to like give an offer to Russia to facilitate a, an end to the, to the war or whatever. Uh, immediately, they get shame, you know, into submission. Basically, uh, you have like all those articles say, "Oh, this is how can he say this?" You know, is essentially adding and abetting a. a An international criminal, blah, blah, blah. you know this is very difficult, you know, and this makes it much easier for people within, for the faction within the French government that is on board with liberal imperialism to impose their preferences and win the the internal battle inside the government because they can use this outrage from the outside, be it from NATO allies or be it from the media in France or, and elsewhere to, To win the battles and, uh, impose their policies. So, you know, you have, it's not that there is no diversity of thought within Western government. There, there really is. But the fact that, uh, the commentary is so uh, unanimous makes it very hard for people who oppose the prevailing view in, in the commentary to, you know, to impose their views. I mean, even so, it's still not easy. Like I said, it would never have happened. We would never have made this strong commitment to ukraine um like and, you know again, despite this near unanimous uh agreement with that policy in the commentary among commentators in the media et cetera, as I have said before, if the faction that was on board of the program uh inside the French and German and even American government had tried to tell this policy of a uh, an un, seemingly unlimited commitment to Ukraine's defense in March 2022, it would never have worked. They were only able to achieve this result by doing things gradually. And again, I'm not even sure even they like, made a, that it was a conscious strategy. You know, They knew that, okay, we're going to do this gradually because if we try to do this, to convince people to uh, get behind this policy right away, it won't work. I think for the most part, they, even they like, didn't feel like uh, it wasn't like a conscious strategy. So my point is that, um, despite, you know, this, the, the media unanimity and like the dominant narrative, it's not all powerful. Uh, it, it still took a long time, uh, before the Western governments adopted the, the policy that is, um, suggested or, you know, implied by the dominant view. And even so, even today, you know, it's still, we still don't go as far as the, the narrative. Would want us to go, you know. I mean, you know, there's still a lot of things we're not giving. We're not giving Ukraine. We're not giving them like long-range weapons that they're asking for. We're not giving them. I mean, Poland recently sent a few MiGs, but we're not giving them. You know, a, a fighter jets. Uh, for the most part, uh, the number of tanks we're sending them, you know, it, it's really not that impressive. Like we've committed to send them like two brigades worth of tanks. Basically, we haven't even sent. All of that yet we're dragging our feet in doing this. So even today, there's still a lot of people within Western governments, including the UN government, who are, I think, clearly dragging their feet. Uh, so this, this, you know, the, the media narrative, I'm not, it's clearly powerful, but it's not all powerful. You, you know, people, you know, the factions that oppose this kind of policy within Western government, they still have a lot of ways to uh, procrastinate, uh, you know, delay. You know, various like delaying tactics, uh, and, and you know we're still we're still a far cry from the kind of thing that we do. If the maximalists that we hear a lot in the media had their way, uh, so it's a it's a complicated picture. You know, I don't think I don't think we should oversimplify things. But, you know, and present present the situation as if like the the prevailing narrative in the media was all powerful because it's not, but it is very powerful still. And, and it does have effect, and and it still it, it did play a major role in the fact that we have the policy we do now.
0: Can an explicitly realist policy um, be implemented now and and with and held in in the West? I mean, have you seen any examples of that happening without it being pulled into the direction of of media
1: pressures? No, I, I don't think. Um, I mean. You know, in the past we did well <clears throat> it's not true. It's you know, it's not true that we had like a realist policy in, in our relations with Russia, but let's say it was more realist than it was than it is now. Uh, again, the the invasion made it really hard for for realists. Um and and uh and much easier for liberal imperialists. Um I don't think you know. I, th- I think there are two problems. It's not just, um, it's not just that the the dominant narrative, you know, dominant liberal imperialist narrative in the media makes it very hard for realists to win policy battles in government. Although this is a real thing, you know, the this, this is a problem. But it's also that increasingly, uh, realists are isolated in in. Uh, in government, there is a personal problem. If you look at the U.S. in particular, um, in the first Bush administration, I'm talking about Bush the Elder, you know, Bush 41, there was actually a lot of old school realism, and Bush himself was very cautious. Uh, he was not prone to this kind of like ideologically driven uh, foreign policy scheme. Um, he was a really cautious guy. He, um, I'm not saying, you know, I agree with everything he did, but it was definitely, you know, he and a lot of people in that government were of a very different breed than the people we have today. But the thing is that the new generation are overwhelmingly on board with liberalism. There has been a generational, generational change. And so there's a personal problem. Even if you are real, realist, say you're a realist politician uh, and you manage to get elected, which is very possible because most people don't care about foreign policy, you know, they don't vote based on foreign policy. But okay, you, you're really, uh, you're a realist politician and you managed to get elected. Uh, you still need a lot of people, you need a lot of people to implement your realist policies. And at this point, in a country like the US, it's less true in France for instance, but it's becoming also increasingly true. But in the US, it's gonna be very difficult to find qualified people to staff your government who we'll have the same preferences as you? Who we'll have realist preferences? Because increasingly, uh, people in the relevant pool of applicants are all liberal and perilous of one tribe or another. So you have this. You have it's not just about the it's not just the media pressure that make it difficult. Although it does make it difficult, it's also the fact that it's really difficult to find qualified personnel to implement this kind of policy. And you know uh president or whatever, like he, he needs to rely on personnel to implement his preferred policies. And he can't just ignore people. Like people have this idea that the, the US president say uh can just tell, you know, his his uh, advisors and the rest of the cabinet, you know, the members of his cabinet to go to hell if they and to do whatever he wants on foreign policy. That's not how it works. You know, like you have he, he, he relies on the technical expertise of those guys to frame the option to tell him what he can and cannot do uh to present him the situation if he doesn't listen to them they can't do their job but he needs them to do their job because he can't literally run the government on his own so so it's very uh it it it's not you know and if you don't have you know in the pool of applicants you don't have enough qualified people who have really policy preferences it's going to be very hard for you to have a realist foreign policy, even if you are yourself a realist, and even in the absence of media pressure, then of course, the fact that uh, Nibble and Peril is totally dominate the discourse in the media is going to make it even more difficult. But my point is that uh, you know, even, bef- even in the independently of this, you have a personal problem here. Of course, the personal problem is related to the media and intellectual environment, because obviously the reason why... The number of realists has, has been crashing among in the in the relevant pool of applicants, you know, and people with the relevant expertise it is linked to the fact that you know among the intellectual environment is very favorable to liberal imperialism because this is going to determine what people get taught in school, um, you know, what their peers think, and people are influenced by their peers. So you know those things are related, obviously. But my point is that if you look at the the mechanisms it's important to distinguish them.
0: Um. Yes. Yeah, I think, you know, the, the fact that liberalism and by extension liberal imperialism has become the, the, the operating software of uh, pretty much any uh, elite thinking person uh, in, in the West. I mean, this might hold up for, for a longer time. This might have a reversal, I hope, but... Um, yeah, it seems to be it seems to be that way. So it has a lot of a lot of interesting downstream consequences. Um, but we're coming up on time, and I want to ask you uh, the last question. It's a question everyone gets asked: um, Is uh, do you have a um, a thinker, a writer, influential maybe political theorist, or someone who you think is uh, has been? Important in in how you think, but you think is underrated that people just don't don't know about or you know they that they'd be they'd
1: be um,
0: they'd be well well put to to um, to look into.
1: Yeah, that's uh, I wish you'd asked me this question before so I had more time to think about it because I, I don't.
0: Uh... I usually do, but I, <laughs> it's based on that one today. Yeah, I, I usually prime people, but yeah, just
1: no. That could but, be. That's you okay. Um, I mean, um, yeah, I don't have any. I mean, there are lots of people that I think are interesting, but like, like I could cite many, but there's there's not one in particular, you know, like yeah, var- um on, on, on various on various issues, you. like you know, that I think one of the great thing about Twitter, for instance, that you get exposed to a lot of people who. Was existent you wouldn't even have sus- suspected you know were you not on Twitter, and were actually very interested, but that people don't get a lot of exposure to because they tend to be you know marginal uh, figures. I don't mean marginal necessarily in the sense that what they say is very spicy you know or like uh, um, <clears throat> counter narrative or however you want to call it but just you know they don't have uh they're not like famous journalists or intellectuals or whatever but that um no i i don't think uh, i i can't think of any you know one person in particular but on on various issues i mean by by a lot of there are a lot of interesting people out there uh who i think should get more uh um airing than they do i mean i think that one of the good things about podcasts like like yours you can invite some of those people, in. maybe I'll give you suggestions you know, uh but no, I don't, uh... yeah, I'm trying to to think of uh, one person in particular, especially on this issue, um... there are a lot of people who, are, who have interesting things to say, you know, on, on foreign policy, but uh, can't think of one person in particular, you know, I can give you an example, for instance, I think, um, I've been talking about that book a lot, because I think it's a great book, but um, there's a guy called Mike Mazar, who I think is a researcher at RAND. So it, he couldn't be more establishment, you know, he got Rand, so the think tank that, uh, that are traditionally has close ties to the U.S. military establishment. So really it's not like a marginal, uh, figure, but he wrote that book, uh, called Leap of Faith about the decision that examined how the decision to invade Iraq in 2003 was made. And so it's based on a lot of interviews, uh, memoirs, the tribal material, et cetera. Um, and I think it's a very interesting book that uh, uh, is very relevant to the current discussion about Ukraine, because basically argues that uh, most of the arguments that were put forward you know, in favor of invading Iraq were post rationalization racialization. And that the thing was mostly an emotional thing, really. Uh, Basically, the U.S. decided to invade Iraq because after 9-11, it was kind of similar to the decision of like the guy in prison who on the first day arrived, uh, decided going to fuck up the biggest guy he can find in the courtyard to make clear that, you know, he's not to be met with. And it was something similar with the U.S. where uh, they had just been hurt badly all their soul, which had never happened. Uh... You know, if you exclude Pearl Harbor, which weather on the mainland, UX, And so they felt they needed to send a signal that they were still the big dog in the in the courtyard and that they shouldn't be met with. And so they thought we're going to catch one guy who has been opposing us for a long time and we're going to fuck him up in front of everyone to send a clear signal. And, you know, it's not that they had this, that this was a conscious thinking, you know, that they didn't consciously think this is what we're going to do and why we're going to do it. But he's arguing basically that this is why they did it. And then they came up with all sorts of rationalizations that are more acceptable even to themselves. Because most people don't want to accept that this is how they think, even if that is in fact how they think, uh, to invade Iraq. But you know, you know, more generally, it shows how uh, foreign policy, people think of foreign policy as being determined by... The kind of like cost benefit calculations that people present when they talk about that stuff um, in public debates. And, but uh, what it shows is that, you know, the emotional element is much stronger than people realize. And, um, and also it shows how you can gradually, uh, put your hand in a mechanism that you don't control, you know, and, and, and get into a policy that has like unforeseen consequences because you were. Dominated by those emotional elements and, and didn't think things through, and uh, so I think it's it's a book, and it's Leap of Faith by Mike Mather. Um, I think it's a great book that has a lot of relevance to current, the current debate, you know, about Ukraine. Uh, but you know, I wouldn't say that it's not as if like this guy was like my main influence on foreign policy. It's just one example of of a book that more people should read and a guy that. Because you know he's been commenting a lot on, and I think he's been much better than most people on this topic in on Ukraine. Uh, so yeah, that's just one example. If I had to give one example, that, that would be the, the, probably the best book I've read on foreign policy in the past two years or, or so. Yeah.
0: Excellent. Yeah, I mean that's definitely a, a new recommendation. I haven't heard of this, and yeah, I think it's it's highly relevant and it's. It pierces through the the illusion that for some reason, like you know, super, you know, non non individuals make better decisions than than individuals, and, and kind of how the the pitfalls of the individual individual irrationality uh, can can catch up to to these supposedly better informed, better you know, um, resourced, uh, more uh, more collaborative places, and yeah, it's. Uh, it's kind of scary because it feels like you know kind of that's kind of the meta theme of our conversation today. How you know small escalations, you know, different incentives for different actors and in different places can lead to pretty strange outcomes uh, that don't necessarily reflect uh, the information on the ground or anything, but you know the incentives of the different actors that participate in this whole thing. So yeah, thank you so much. This is this is a really good conversation. Um, Is there a place that you'd like to point people? I know you have a Substack. Is there uh, any other um,
1: resource or direction that you'd like people to go into? Uh, I think, you know, if so, you know, I think there are basically three places to have a Substack. There's my Twitter account, you know, where I I publish, because I publish stuff uh, on my Substack, but also in other venues and mostly going to be on TSPI, you know, where I'm a research fellow, as you mentioned at the beginning. So they can check my blog on TSPI's website as well. My Twitter account and my Substack. And if they have this, you know, if they follow my Twitter account, basically they will, you know, I, I, I share my work over there. So it's kind of like the one place. If there is one place that that would be this. Uh, then again, yeah, there's the Substack. There's the TSPI, the blog on TSPI's website, but that that's about it, I think.
0: Excellent. Thank you so much. I'll put these in the show notes and yeah, I'm grateful you came on today.
1: Thanks for having me. It was great.